On April 16, 1849, something was not right. About 300 souls in the small village of Windsor woke up to chaos. Nearby, in the village of Sandwich, which 500 souls inhabited, they were also alert. It was hard not to ignore a monstrous fire. It was destroying everything in sight. The buildings in Windsor were clustered along the waterfront near Ferry Street. At one o'clock in the morning, a fire alarm sounded from the tower of the old Presbyterian Church. Detroit's entire fire department rushed to the foot of Woodward Avenue a few minutes after the fire alarm. It looked like Windsor was going to be completely destroyed by fire. There goes Dougal's large brick warehouses. Fronting the river, on the west side of Ferry Street, it was engulfed in flames. The bells in Windsor and Detroit were jangling non-stop. No ferry boats appeared to help. The Detroit firemen watched the fire leap across Ferry Street from one building to another. They were restricted from crossing over into Windsor. They waited an hour and a half, and then Chief Engineer William Duncan of the Volunteer Fire Department of Detroit saw Hastings, a small steamboat, land at the foot of Shelby Street. planned to take engine companies number four and five with their hose carts to Windsor. The captain of the Hastings said no. The Hastings was too small to fit the two companies and their equipment. The captain of the Hastings knew the wind was increasing, ultimately making the trip across the Detroit River much more dangerous. However, he quickly changed his mind. All the firemen went on board. John Owen, one of the firemen, asked Chief Duncan, would it not be best to take over both hose carts? The voyage to Windsor was rough. The little Hastings wobbling, clearly testing its limit with the crew on board. They landed at Windsor. The firemen, John Owen's suggestion to take both hose carts the team was able to reach every side of the fire. Without it, they would have been powerless. Chief Duncan and his men reached the scene. Almost an acre of territory was burned. A hurricane of cinders and flame were traveling northwest towards the large frame hotel known as Windsor Castle. It was a fire for a distance of 25 or 30 feet along its front. The Detroit fireman was putting out the fire less than five minutes from landing. The fire towered over the fireman. In the face of uncertainty and being uncomfortable, their intelligence, grit, and endurance prevailed. For about two hours, the firemen were combating the flames. 
Their hats burned almost to cinders. Their hands and faces blistered. did not visit Detroit that night. At five o'clock in the morning, the Ariel made a trip, returning with engine company number two. After the Detroit firefighters left, the Windsor volunteers maintained a steady stream on the fire for over six hours. The following list are the buildings that were destroyed. All of them were on fire when the Detroiters reached the wharf. Dougal's Dry Goods Store, Two Warehouses, Hunt's Hardwood and Packing House, Customs Office, a Restaurant, The Queen's Hotel, Brick School House and Dwelling, M. Richard's Bakery and Dwelling, Four Large Frame Barns, and Four Horses, besides several small outhouses. The total amount lost was $30,000. If it wasn't for the Detroit firemen, this figure would have doubled Windsorites during and after the fire. They treated Detroit firemen with food, coffee, cigars, and they cheered them when they returned home. The residents of Windsor wanted to formally thank the Detroit firemen. In early July of 1849, the Detroit firemen were celebrated at the foot of Woodward Avenue. They received a delegation from Windsor dignitaries. A German band provided the ceremony with a joyous soundtrack. The Windsor people brought with them a beautiful silver trumpet. This was a gift to the fire brigade of Detroit by the inhabitants of Windsor and Sandwich as a testimonial of their gratitude for their noble and generous conduct in crossing the river on that intensely cold night of April 16th, 1849. The total destruction of Windsor was mainly prevented thanks to the Detroit Fire Department. William Duncan accepted the gift. The press attributed the fire to sparks from the steamboat Hastings. Shortly after the Hastings left Windsor, fire was seen to issue from a pile of cedar posts on the wharf. Soon, much of the village was ablaze. The Windsor Bucket Brigade, without Detroit's help, would have been futile. A year before the fire, Chief Duncan arranged, just in case a disastrous fire would happen at night in Windsor, a ferry should be sent to Detroit. An engine company or two had the opportunity to translate its good neighbor's policy into action. Besides the Great Fire of 1849 and another significant fire that took place later in Windsor in 1871, I talked to a former Windsor Star reporter named Walt McCall, who was there for the Great Fire of the 20th century, only this time in Detroit, 1967. I, I started at the Star in uh, August 1960 and left in uh, October 72 to go to Chrysler Canada's Public Relations Department. 
I first asked him about Windsor's identity with Detroit since our relationship extends beyond 152 years, longer than Canada existing as a nation under Confederation. Well, I guess we're good neighbors, always have been, and willing to help each other out. It was done back in 1849, especially when they floated a couple of their steam fire engines over the river to help fight that huge 1849 fire, which I think was the largest of the two. And uh, we had that bond all these years. We never thought we'd ever be able to repay them. And lo and behold, in July 1967, in the riots, beleaguered, downbeaten Detroit called over here and begged for any help we could send. So Windsor sent two pumpers and a, a command car over there, and they were over there for the better part of two days. We never thought we'd be able to repay the debt, and we did, and they were deeply grateful for what we did. In fact, I got some material on it. We had a little ceremony in, uh, I don't know if you've come across that yet, in uh, 1969, marking the 120th anniversary of one of those fires. We had a little ceremony in the middle of the Ambassador Bridge, which I participated in. Yeah, I was the one, I was dressed in a, as a 1860s firefighter in, the, in, in that, and I even wrote the story, so. In 1969, at the international boundary between the United States and Canada, between Windsor and Detroit, on the Ambassador Bridge, the Detroit Fire Chief at the time presented the Windsor Fire Chief with the same silver ceremonial fire trumpet that was presented to the Detroit firemen by the citizens of Windsor, shortly after the 1849 fire. 1967 was the year where Canada turned 100 years old under Confederation. I asked him what was it like back then to celebrate this monumental year. Well, you know, the, uh, the excitement had been building for years. Everybody planned to do something. And in most communities, and especially the smaller ones, the fire department is always a major participation participant in the parades with their shiny new engines and sometimes their old ones. So the chiefs began to talk amongst themselves, you know, maybe we should coordinate all this. And uh, they formed a committee in early 1967. I remember our first meeting was in the Tilbury Fire Hall. Gene Tiber was chief of that department. And we sat down and worked out a calendar of events. And I believe there were like 12 of them overall, starting with the first one in Chatham in May of 67. That was the first of the big ones. And the last one, amazingly, in October of 67, and also happened to be the Detroit Fire Department Centennial. So we finished up with a bang. That was, we all went over there and participated in their 100th anniversary parade. So it was a memorable year. We had this thing highly organized, you know, the uh, transport of the trucks and the volunteers that, that participated in each, each of the parades. It, anywhere from half a dozen in the smaller places to 20 or more at some of the bigger parades, old, old fire engines and uh, the modern ones, that sort of thing. So the, the fire, fire service was really involved, uh, highly visible in most of those local celebrations. Any big parade that we've ever had here, they've been, they've come over here. They've sent a couple of trucks to a representation. We've and for years, like the annual fire department retirement banquet, they'd have a representative there and so on. We this closeness that goes back to 1849, maybe even earlier. It's it's always been there, and it's wonderful. That I don't. I think it's kind of unique for two cities on international border like this to have that kind of relationship. Several times they sent their fireboat over. We had major waterfront fires and said, you know, just whatever we ask for. But the amazing thing to be still is that we never expected to be able to pay back the favor, and we did. Mm 
1967. As tragic as that whole thing was, we were there. I asked McCall, how did the Detroit Rebellion affect the residents in Windsor? Well, it was a, it was a huge shock. It was it's kind of a sad juxtaposition there. That uh, I remember that July twentieth or twenty third, sixty seven. It was a Saturday night, Sunday morning. It flared, and uh, one of the highlights of uh, Expo sixty seven was a special motorcade of antique cars from Windsor to Expo sixty seven. That took place that Sunday afternoon in Dieppe Park. Uh, hundred or so of these beautifully restored old cars. And Lord Montague of Bowley was here with his 1907 Rolls Royce and stuff, some very high-end cars. They left here. They had a banquet in the Cleary Auditorium that night. And it was kind of tragic because you could, amid all this celebration, you could see the columns of smoke arriving. Nobody knew quite how bad it was over there, but something awful was going on. And you had these two events back-to-back like that. And then first thing the next Monday morning, the cars took off in convoy to Expo 67. And Detroit was really in flames by then. I remember going up to some of my cohorts on the roof of the Windsor Star and watch this. And we could count 10 or 11 columns of smoke, major fires burning over there, mostly unattended. It's tragic. Uh, nobody quite knew the scope of it. Now, it. Solid information was hard to come by, but it was awful. We were hearing awful things there, and so on. you could see it. The, the, thing, the border was shut down. Everything, it was not normal time, but it's too bad it happened in the centennial year. And of course, that was a huge... And even when we did that parade in Detroit, only three months later, the tension was still there. The things were, everybody knew things were not quite the same. And uh, it was too, it's really unfortunate it happened when it did, uh, that it ever happened. I wanted to find out why local residents were so interested to watch the fires across the river. Well, because you, you couldn't avoid them. You have newscasts, you're hearing what's going on over there. There's a natural curiosity. Fires are public spectacles no matter where they happen. And they, they, again, we didn't know what it was. A huge column, so something big burning over there. And we, the reports were that things are totally over, out of control there. Anarchy and all that sort of thing, which it truly was at the time. And we, they didn't know till maybe a day later that Windsor had sent help over there. So I remember getting it at the Windsor in my, in my office there, getting a call from the chief, from Chief Cox. And Walt said, we're, we've been asked to, and we're gathering manpower right now. We're going to send two trucks and a, and a, a chief's car over there to help. Do you want to come with us? <laughs> I would love to have, but I said I had to cover from this side first. Mm-hmm. And they went, but I, what I did two days in a row, I met them when they came back early in the morning, seven o'clock in the morning each day, and interviewed them. And it was pretty harrowing the tales they were telling. Yeah. Here'd be a four-story furniture store burning from top to bottom. A Toledo fire engine, one from Gross Points and one from Windsor. The Detroit Fire Department was totally beleaguered, you know, worn down, depleted resources and so on. They took help wherever they could find it and were forever in their good graces because we came to them in a time of need and gave a very good account of ourselves. Executive Director at the Windsor Star at the time said to his employees, no one can go to Detroit. McCall was in the office. 
I made my big mistake was being in the office right. at the time when he said that. If I had not known, I would have gone with them. Right. Would have made a hell of a story, really would. So, but I didn't get over there till the Tuesday. Bill Bishop and I, the photographer, went over. Finally, when they opened up, we got to go there first thing Tuesday morning. Things were not over by any means, mm -hmm. and they were very, very tense. The military had occupied the city, and we saw the wreckage and the, those fires were still burning. But they had sort of got a lid on it. It was starting to wind down, but it was pretty, pretty awesome to see that. The, the one thing about the border is a border. A curtain came down. Yeah. We knew we couldn't go over there. People at Commerce and trucking companies and auto companies, one that got parts from there and so we knew that everything was shut down. There's going to be an impact, negative impact. But we understood that that things are not normal over there. Maybe a while before they are. Meantime, life went on here as normal as we could make it, mm -hmm. even though we're right on the front on the doorstep of what was going on over there. A lot of Detroit people had connections uh, and black families going back and forth. In fact, every year the first weekend in August, what's now the Civic Holiday Weekend, the Emancipation Parade was held here. Thousands of uh, African-American families from Detroit, Toledo, and far came over here and had a big parade from downtown, down Willad, right to Jackson Park here, where they had two days of games, fun and games and so on. That was part of our culture then. It was just like the Labor Day parade was an annual event that had, and a lot of people went down to watch it, you know, so, but that cooled because, I, and I think in, because um, it was only a few weeks later, I think it was can I think it was canceled or very much subdued and it was never the same again quite the same the the event kind of wound down as the border became more you know not volatile but uh what happened over there left its mark Remember that was the hot year they had major riots in Watts and various others Baltimore and US cities we were everybody was disappointed thought maybe that uh, Detroit had escaped all this, but they didn't. It flared up here, too. It was one of the worst. People in Windsor went on with their normal activities while the Detroit Rebellion took place. For example, the centennial scene teen week went on according to plan. Here, McCall talks about what was it like witnessing the rebellion in real life. Surreal is right. I mean, the uh, I remember on the was it the, the Sunday night they flew in the 82nd Airborne and there was a steady drone of the C-130 Hercules military transport planes flying into Selfridge Field, bringing these troops. They landed there and they set up camp literally in downtown Detroit to see these armored vehicles and these big tough guys with real guns and whatnot, grim-faced. Uh, they occupied the city, tried to take the city back. It was, uh, I'll never, never forget that site down there. It was all olive green downtown, tanks and uh, heavy armored vehicles and so on. And I remember one of Bill and I, and when we were over there, there was a, a, a Buick had been run over by a tank or something like that. And we wanted to talk to the guy, and this big, very tough, negative, leave now. Well, we did what we were told. And there were still gunshots. Twice we had to take coverage. You could hear gunfire uh, in the distance, not close at hand, but you you didn't stick your head up. But there were you know, blocks of burned out. That was I never forget that the blocks of the smell of acid smoke. The, the the degree of devastation was beyond what we imagined over here. Burned out stores and blocks and so on. The terrible tension in the air, danger, sense of danger, 
and everybody by that time was just worn down. So that was, I believe, on the Tuesday morning we went over there. It broke out early hours of Sunday morning on 12th Street. And uh, then I got a call from a friend in Detroit uh, Sunday morning about 10 o'clock. Hey, Walt said, it started. What started? It said, they're rioting on 12th Street, burning buildings. It's really bad. It's out of control. Fire department's pulling out. It said, wow. And then you began to hear about this. Then we got called into the office. And it just grew from there. And again, the situation like that, it's hard to get your finger really solid in for it. Today, you get a lot quicker with social media and stuff like that. But... You, we weren't getting much hard information what was really going on there, except you could tell it was really bad. Mm-hmm. And it just got worse as the day went on. Mm-hmm. The Jackson Park bandshell, too, also went up in flames. Yeah, it burned a radiant heat. That was only a few years. I think Ford contributed that. It was aluminum clad, and it uh, radiant heat, it just melted. Yeah. I remember that. I couldn't believe the volume of fire. That was a Saturday afternoon. And, uh, but that, uh, they used to have concerts there and so but big events happened. It was Jackson Park where we held all this stuff. The Jackson Park at, at overpass had been built, had been extended through it, but that only, that happened in the late fifties. Right. Yeah. You know, all of the, the big parades in Windsor, the Canada Day Parade or Dominion Day as it was called back then, the, uh, Labor Day Parade, uh, the, um, the the May the huge May Day parade we had here most of those originated downtown came down Willette Avenue and ended right here one of the biggest events of the year in Wind including '67 the rest of it was Labor Day weekend was Fireman's Field Day which was a, an, an annual institution in Jackson Park mm-hmm. the Labor Day parade went from downtown ended in Jackson Park there was a big carnival there this was a three day or four day uh, celebration that was a very big deal. And uh, they continued to hold them after, long after the overpass went through. But that did split the park in half. Mm-hmm. And I remember in 57, July 57, the huge grandstand that was the focal point of that, of all those things, burned down. Huge fire. In fact, Engine 7 was hooked up just over, I remember riding my bike down to watch that on a Saturday afternoon. Uh, that huge grandstand burned, but that was before the expressway went through. Or before they well, before they extended Willette Avenue through there, a lot of controversy, of course, about doing that, about cutting the park in half like that. But the uh, most of the events that have been held there, but went on anyhow, continued. They did continue there even after the overpass the overpass was built there. McCall can add hero to his list of achievements. He directly helped the rescue effort when the Metropolitan store exploded on Willette Avenue back in 1960. It exploded because of a broken gas line. I was I had only been at the Star a few months. I was going downtown. I was on a day. I was I worked nights, so I had the afternoons off. So I was going downtown to do some shopping, and uh, I had parked my car. And suddenly, there's this this roar, and uh, I looked up, and you all you could see was this black smoke and what. And I said, "Shit, something's happening here," and ran back there. The fire department was arriving. There was all this carnage. People lying. It was un, un, unbelievable. And I remember me and another guy going through the window because the doors were all blocked by counters and stuff like that. We went through one of the windows to see if we could help inside. And I wound up, I was in there for maybe four hours, four or five hours. The news, they were frantically looking for all of their reporters, including me, and they were pissed off. They couldn't find me mm-hmm. anywhere. I stumbled out of there at six o'clock and said, well, I can't, my car's blocked in by mercy vehicles. So I better go to the office. I walked in, and my editor, Bob Pearson, looked at me like, 
where the hell have you been? I said, I've been in that store. What's the one that blew? I've been in there since it happened. His eyes got big. Yeah, unbelievable. You know, and I told him what had happened. I said, get your picture taken and write. And I wrote running takes on that. And I won a national news. I was the first one on the Windsor Star to win a national newspaper award mm-hmm. for coverage of that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, a lot of things that happened in my life here. So that was one of the unforgettable days. There were 10 killed and over 100 injured. I handled live ones of dead. I can't tell you how many of each just got them out of there. Yeah. You know, I was able to really glad to be able to contribute to the rescue effort. But things you can't plan on, that just happened. Mm-hmm. And also, yeah, that was another big thing. That was October 26, 1960. Mm-hmm. I got ahead for dates, as you know. Yeah. <laughs> as I say, you can look it up. Walt shared some fascinating thoughts about Windsor development over the decades. Uh, 1970, when Devonshire opened, changed things forever, and that that precipitated the collapse of downtown. One by town, one by one, the department stores and various other stores closed, and people went to quote the mall. It still amazes me a city of this size basically has one mall. We got smaller ones, strip malls and things like that, but only one major one, and Devonshire still there. But it certainly changed the mercantile heart. Downtown Windsor was an unbelievably vibrant, active place. Uh, Everybody did their shopping there. Parking spaces were hard to find, especially around Christmas time. You went down, that's where you did all your shopping. And to see it gradually, uh, I wouldn't say decay, but abandoned, because the shopping patterns changed. People went, Devonshire took a lot of the, sucked the life out of the downtown, no doubt about it. And we went through some bad times too, during, you know, bad times and for auto industry and so on. But it's still there. The potential's still there. I think Larry Horowitz says people are doing a good job of promoting and trying to get people to come back down. Recently, they elected a new Downtown Windsor Business Improvement Association. Adventure Bay and that sort of thing have certainly helped. They're, they're transforming downtown to the good. I think it's pretty positive what's going on. I think it, don't write us off yet. But uh, it's everything, it's pretty much recognizable, but it's nice to see life being pumped back into downtown. Amazing, I was just saying, it won't be before long, when you talk about the Cleary Auditorium, people won't know what you're talking about. Well, that was, when that was opened in about 1961, I think it was, 1661, that was a grand showplace on the waterfront there, a convention hall, auditorium, and so on. That was the heart of Windsor's life for a long time. Now it's part of the university. Mm-hmm. That's good too. But uh, the disappearance of things like the TBQ, I can't imagine uh, the tunnel barbecue not being there anymore, but it's not. Mm-hmm. Downtown changes like that. All cities change. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, 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 you can go back to a time, you know, September 70 when the uh, Devonshire opened, that's precipitated big change in downtown. Mm-hmm. But the way, the way things change, like... Uh, Chrysler, our office building was on uh, Chrysler Center, the extension of Dulard Road from 1949 till early in this I think it was 2003, moved into the new building there. And they tore that down. Nothing's forever, unfortunately. <laughs> there seems to be. Did you work at the Windsor Star mm-hmm. building that's on the... Yeah, oh yeah, that's, yeah, that's all, where, all wherever it works. Yeah, Pitt and Ferry. Pitt and Ferry. Yeah, yeah. yep. Um, so they're keeping that facade. And yeah, I think that's grand. They're doing that brings back a lot of memories. I remember yeah. every door and window in that place. You know, wow. our editorial was on the second floor. Uh, later on, they moved it up to third floor. Nice. When I was there, it was on the second floor. Wow. We didn't even have air conditioning. It was very, I remember, very hot and sticky there in the summer. Okay. But it was, it was a good place to work. Yeah. 
huge thank you to Walt McCall for the interview. This interview originally took place in the summer of 2015. The beginning narration is adapted from the radio sketch How Detroit Firemen Helped Windsor in the Fire of 1849 by N.F. Morrison, published on June 27, 1946. The radio sketch originally aired on CKLW, and I accessed it from the Essex County Historical Association radio sketches book obtained at Museum Windsor. Thank you to the City of Windsor Arts Culture Heritage Fund for supporting this project. The following songs that were featured were Brushed Bells Leaving Home, Flowing Bells, Marimba on the Hunt, Brushed Bells in the Wind, all by Daniel Birch, as well as Appreciation by Chad Crouch. I accessed these songs through the WFMU Free Music Archive, and I've adapted them on this podcast. This is Life in a Border Town. I'm Walter Patrician. Thank you so much for tuning in.